Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to continue to look at your word, to continue to look at scripture and continue to learn, particularly from the book of Esther. And Lord, as we meet and gather and learn, Lord, that you would be speaking to each one of us. And Lord, again, we just say that our life is your Lord's to to do with as you please, uh, that in our life that, that you would be glorified and that you would be honored. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. A couple of years ago, I remember hearing uh, the story, Bill Hybels telling a story. Uh, when he was younger, he had worked uh, with youth, and, and, uh, and things were going well. I mean, the, the youth group was growing, and they scheduled some kind of big event. I, I mean, they, they brought in a couple hundred kids from in the community, and, you know, I mean, he really encouraged the kids in the youth group, you know, bring your friends, and they really kind of made a, a big deal of it. And so they have this event, and, and, uh, and then for part of the event... Then he got up and he shared the gospel, right? This is how it works, and you need salvation. And he just kind of laid it all out. And then he said, you know, if, if you're interested in this, if you'd like to m- commit your life to Christ, then I would invite you to stand. Well, too many kids stood up. And he's like, okay, they, they didn't understand what I was asking. Like, they're, like they're, okay, so he had everyone sit back down. And he's like, okay, you're not, you're not understanding what I'm laying before you. So he laid it out all again. But this time he was even more clear, more direct, more kind of articulate on, on what kind of the, you know, he's asking of you and, and what this means. And then, okay, if, if that would interest you, then please stand. We even more stood up that time. And, and I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was a couple hundred kids gave their life to Christ that night. And he talks about afterwards just you know, I mean, exhilarated and and exhausted and everything else and just saying, Lord, I mean, I will, I will continue to preach this if you continue to do that. That was amazing. Jesus in his ministry, there was one time where he fed 5,000. There was another time where he fed 4,000 and there's all these people and they, they haven't eaten in a couple days and, and really they, they would have just needed a kind of a, a light snack or, you know, just to be able to, to make it back to, to the villages, to, to civilization. But instead, they, I mean, the, the, the food multiplied. You've probably heard this. They started off with some kid's sack lunch, and they ended up feeding thousands upon thousands of, of people, and everyone had their fill. So it wasn't kind of like a communion thing where you just got like a little bit of nibble and passed it on. Everyone got their fill, and then they had all these baskets of leftovers. There are times where your best laid plans um, are simply too small. Simply too small. And God is going to intervene and he is going to do something that is simply beyond your imagination, simply beyond your comprehension, simply be, uh, just beyond what you could have even dreamt of. And, and you just, you're forced to just sit back and be like, well, that was way too brilliant than, than anything I could have come up with. I mean, that just, that had to have been God. 
So we're doing a five-part sermon series looking at the book of Esther. Today we're in part four, and uh, we started off, we had just kind of an overview and a setting of the book in general, uh, and then we talked about um, auditions and assassinations, and then last week we talked about timing and and favor, and then this week we're going to talk about bold plans and sleepless nights, and and in the middle of it you, you just have this God who continues to work even though people don't see it right away. Um, one that we've talked about this before, one of the things that's unique about Esther is that it is one of two books in scripture that never mentions God at all. Uh, the other one being Song of Solomon. So what do you do when a book of the Bible never mentions God? Like what's the application? What do I do with that? Like how do I, I mean it's a great story that's wonderful, but what am I supposed to do with that come Monday morning? And so there's a variety of different ways that you could go through Esther or lessons that that you could pull out and just a lot of different ways. But what we've been doing, because because we know how the story ends, we've been going back through the book of Esther to say, okay, this event here was undeniably God's intervention. And this event here was undeniably God's intervention. And this event here was undeniably God's intervention. What does that teach us about the character of God? And then how does that inform or impact how we live? Uh, to begin with, um, we've, uh, we've got King uh, Hazarus, uh, some may say King Xerxes. Uh, he had a queen. He fired her. Um, he held auditions for a new queen, which is like the PG version of what really happened. He held auditions for a new queen. And this orphan girl, a girl by the name of Esther, Jewish girl, wins the position. She gets, she gets to become queen. Well, about four or five years after, the, the book of Esther reads fast. And so you, so you kind of got to go back and check some of the kind of the date stamps. But about four or five years after she becomes queen, this evil man by the name of Haman comes into the storyline. And he develops a grudge against a single man, Mordecai. Well, Mordecai and Esther were, I believe it was cousins and also Um, because Esther was an orphan, Mordecai had raised Esther, right? So there's some connection there, but the rest of the world doesn't know about it. Um, But so Haman develops a grudge against this one particular person. But rather than just say, I'm going to take it out on him, Haman decides, I want to take it out on all, like his entire people group, which is basically all the Jews who are living in captivity in, in, in this Persian kingdom, which up until that point was the largest kingdom the world had ever known. I had sort of assumed maybe we're talking about a few thousand, and then I read one commentary that estimated up to maybe 15 million. And so we don't know, other than just say, my initial estimate was probably way off. So we may be dealing with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people spread spread throughout the kingdom. So Esther and Mordecai, Uh, develop a plan to come before the king and plead for the lives of all these thousands, millions of Jews within in the kingdom, which is where we're at today. If you have a Bible or you got a Bible app on your phone, I'm in Esther chapter 5. I would invite you to turn to that, and and that's where we're going to look through today. One of the things that we talked about last week is just Esther being granted an audience with the king. Um... If you came before the king without an invitation, the automatic kind of default course of action is that you were executed. 
right? Like you don't, you don't call up the secretary and schedule something. You had to wait for the king to summon you. And if you just showed up, you know, at the office without an invite, they take you out back and execute you. So it's a pretty big deal to come before the king. And, and so they come up with a, this plan. Um, Esther uh, appears before him. And what she, before anything happens, she needs the king to, to extend uh, his, his scepter, which is basically a sign of grace to say, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you live. So that's the first miracle that they need to happen. We talked about that last week. Uh, the king does that. He extends the, the scepter. Esther approaches the king and says nothing of her true intentions, which is a pretty clever move. Instead, she invites the king and she invites Haman, right? He's the enemy of the Jews. He invites these two people and only these two people. She invites them to a party or a feast that she has thrown in, in, the, in the king's honor. Um, and, and what you'll see happens is that, you know, after the feast and the king is like, well, so what is it that you wanted? And she proceeds to invite him to a second feast the second night. It seems odd at first, but when we go back and we look at what happened between party one and party two, we see that, that it was so, so, so God's intervention to inspire that second feast or that second party simply because of what God did be, between them. And that's, that's part of what we're unlooking, uh, unpacking today. I'm in chapter 5. Let me read this first part to you, um, starting off in verse 1. So on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood at the inner court of the king's palace. So this is where she is, you know, presenting herself and, and hoping that she won't get executed. Uh, the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Miracle number one. He held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the, the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even half of my kingdom. Probably not a literal offer. Probably just the same that they had back in the day to just be like, I'm feeling generous. Make your pitch, right? Like, I'll do this with the kids and buy them candy at the grocery store, but it's not this extensive. It's like you get a candy bar, right? So this is their version of, I'm feeling generous. What would you like? And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman, interesting move, come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. This is, this is gutsy. Because I was thinking through this. Esther is, I mean... She's already kind of putting everything on the line here, right? Um, but she's just walked into the throne room and presumably interrupted whatever it was that the king was doing up until she showed up, right? And so you've got other people around. You've got guards and servants and note takers and butlers and whatnot and that kind of thing. So Esther knows that this is not really the best time or the place to really, you know, kind of make her big ask. So she asks the king to come to a party, prepared just for the king. She knows that he loves to party, so she's just kind of playing to his weakness. So, you know, smart move on her part. But, and th I find this so fascinating. She also invites Haman to the same party. Only Haman. 
So it's pretty much just going to be the three of them and then a whole bunch of waiters and waitresses and servants and that kind of thing, right? But why why does Esther invite Haman? Because as you see, she is going to plead her case in front of Haman. She's going to call him out in front of the king. Rather, like, I, w- I would have not wanted Haman anywhere around, right? Like, I would have said, you know, you know, and talked just to the king. Esther is going to make this king Ahasuerus choose between her and Haman. He, she, she's going to call him out in, in front of the king, name him for his crimes, and then she is praying that the king will take her side rather than his. And she has every reason to believe that he won't, right? Uh, the king has already displayed incredible favor to Haman. Um, he's already elevated him to the, the highest, second highest position. Um, the king hasn't summoned in or talked to Esther in over a month. The king has already disposed of one queen. I mean, like, if, if you're kind of keeping a scorecard, like, the odds are not in her favor on this one. But she's bringing both of them together... She's going to lay it all out, and she's going to basically force the king's hand to say, like, you've got to choose between Haman or me. Verse 5. So, um, so Esther just made her, her pitch, you know, to, to be for this party. Uh, then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and to fill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. I'm not sure what inspired Esther to go like the two-feast route or the two-party route. I don't know if this was something that was planned from the beginning. I don't know if they just if they had it all thought out and this was a really great strategy. I don't know if this was spontaneous change of plans or she's like, I think the Lord is saying let's do this a second time. I don't know if she got cold feet or, what, or women's intuition. I, I don't know the reasoning for this strategy. Um, but Esther invites him into the, the second banquet. But whatever the reason, as the story unfolds, it's actually of critical significance that there were two parties, not one. Or, or that there were two feasts, not one. And, and again, we, we have to say, God was somehow involved in inspiring or implementing or withholding or, or doing the, the, the two-feast method, right? I have to believe that it was God who restrained Esther from speaking at, at the first one, at the first banquet, simply because God worked such a miracle in the middle between the two that Esther had no idea was coming. What happens between the two feasts, no one knew about other than God, but it becomes so significant in the king granting favor to to the eventual um, request, right? So here's the first application that I would offer to you. Is that God kept Esther quiet in that first feast 
and, but then later on inspired her words in the second feast, right? So the first application is that somehow, for whatever reason, by whatever method, God kept Esther quiet in the first feast. There will be days where God is going to keep your mouth shut, and it is going to be a beautiful and wonderful thing. Because you will later see how God intervened because if, if if you had spoken up too early, it would have ruined it and it would have not worked. And we, I mean, this even comes into what we were talking about last week about the significance of God's timing, understanding God's timing, when to act, when to speak, when not to, that kind of thing, right? Sometimes God's biggest gift is keeping you silent for another day. Now, there's a whole flip side that we could talk to about the importance of talking when you're inspired to talk, but that's probably going to be our next sermon on the series, not this week. So for this week, just the significance of how God kept Esther quiet on that first feet. A, a couple other miracles to keep in mind. Secondly, the king was willing to accept a delay. All right, this was an all-ruling, selfish, egotistical, narcissistic monarch who got whatever he wanted, and the king said, and the queen Esther says. Um, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna answer that question. You come back tomorrow and then I'll give you your answer. It is remarkable that, that the king accepted that, that, that he, that he was willing to go along with that. So that's another miracle is just that he was willing to wait a third miracle. So Esther had, I mean, we saw at the very beginning, right? Esther had like attendants or servants or like these girls who worked for her and at times they served as the communication go-between between Esther and Mordecai and, and all of that. So these servants would have known Esther's identity as a Jew because she was hiding all of that. She would have known, they would have known the connection between Esther and Mordecai. If just one of them had told on Esther, had informed, had ratted her out to Haman or the king or that kind of thing, this whole plan would have gotten derailed before it even got started. So the, the mere fact that, that her attendance around her helped guard and protect her identity which, or her nationality, which she was still keeping a secret, that's another miracle that we see in this story. And, and another miracle, too, is just the incredible courage of Esther in the midst of all of this, right? I mean, this, this is significant because for Esther, her life is on the line. She's got a plan that she's really hoping works out. But it's not just her life. I mean, there are millions of other lives at stake. And so she's having to play like this weird game with, with a temperamental king to try to swing his favor. So there is nothing casual, relaxed, comfortable about this, right? I mean, this is no sleep, heart-pounding, sweaty palms, shaky hands, right? Like, you're just struggling to keep your composure. I mean, you're, you have rehearsed your lines over and over and over and tried to figure out every single kind of contingency plan. He says this, I'll say this, this happens, I'll do this. But if he says this, then I'll, I mean, like you have just tried to work out thousands of different scenarios to not goof this up. Because if you do, millions of people die. So you just, and you're just working with his weird temperament. So this is, so you just, another miracle in all of this, 
um, is just Esther's courage. Because by every measure, this is the scariest season of your life that you've ever experienced. First set of miracles. God um, keeps Esther quiet until uh, the next time. And somehow God inspires these two parties. The, the king is, being, is willing to be told to wait. None of her servants, girls, rat her out. And just her incredible composure throughout the whole thing. So they have the first party. Haman leaves the party. And he thinks he's hot stuff. Right? Like the guy is actually just insufferable. But he heads home. He invites over all of his friends and his wife. And he proceeds to brag about how amazing that he is. But also how he can't stand Mordecai. Because Mordecai won't bow to him. So anyways. Esther 5, chapter 9. Just listen to how arrogant and self-absorbed this man is. Haman went out that day, joyful, glad of heart. So this is after the party. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them, the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons and the promotions to which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him. So the king had advanced Haman above all the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all friends said to him, Let a gallows, fifty cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. A few quick observations on this. One is that this guy would just be insufferable to be around, right? I mean, just listening to someone brag about yourself like that is just nauseating. So how his friends put up with him, I don't know. Um, but they did. Secondly, so his, in, the, in the ESV it says, you know, let a gallows be raised 50 cubits um, high and, and that kind of, And he's like, oh yeah, great idea. Okay, technically the word for gallows is like tree or timber or stick. Um, so in our thinking, like in U.S., when we think, well, you're going to hang someone on that. We think of, like, the rope, and you hang them, and that kind of thing. But in Persian history and culture, they prefer to just, sorry, but they just, imper- they just impaled someone on the stake and then lifted it up high. So we actually don't know exactly what's going to go on if there's, anyways, if it's a rope or an impaled or whatnot, but that's kind of what's going on here. And later on, something gets said. He built this so high that apparently you could see it from the king's palace as well, too. So that's another um, part of that. Haman proceeds to have a good night's sleep. These, this gallow stick impaling thing is being built while he's sleeping well. Meanwhile, the king is not having a good night's sleep. Um, he, is, he can't sleep. And, and I would offer that he's got kind of this god induced case of insomnia so he has the historic records brought in and read to him to try to put him to sleep and again like you you have to say god is involved with this right because of all the options at the king's disposal 
Like, why the historic records, right? Like, musicians, someone from the harem, more food, more wine, um, you know, get, bring the masseuse in and get a spa treatment, right? Like a game of checkers. Like, there's all these options that he could have had. He goes with historical records, and not only historical records, but they end up on that four or five year time period. And even on that, I mean, it could have been 10 years ago or like last month. Like, the fact that it's historical records from five years ago is amazing. The historical records are being read from five years ago. He hears how Mordecai saved his life. He remembers that. And so he asks the question, well, what was done for Mordecai? And the the servants reading it are like, well, nothing was done for Mordecai. Which, again, if Mordecai had been honored in the moment, none none of this would have worked. Mordecai had to take that action and then receive nothing and hear nothing for five years for this moment to take place. So, it almost reads like the king pulled an all-nighter. He, he couldn't sleep. So the next morning, the king asks, who's, who's in the court? Which is basically like, you know, have any of my wise men or other people, like, has anyone walked in? Well, wouldn't you know it, Haman has arrived early to the office that day because he wants to make this pitch to the king to have Mordecai executed because Mordecai just rubs him the wrong way, right? So Haman, you know, being diligent, shows up early because he's got this special request to get Mordecai um, executed, right? So Mordecai has just walked in. So the servants are like, oh, well, I mean, Mordecai shows up. So the king summons Mordecai. And Mordecai, and, and Mordecai, or, sorry, the king summons Haman. And Mordecai knows none of, about none of this. But the, the, the king asks... What should be done for someone the king wants to honor? And Haman is so proud and so egotistical. Chapter 6, verse 6. Haman said to himself, Whom would the king to delight to honor more than me? And so Haman comes up with a list of things that he would love above all else. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with luxury or fine houses or retirement homes or farmland. It has everything to do with fame, with honor, with ego. And Haman basically wants to be paraded around like a king. Haman wants to be treated as a king for a day. Haman wants king status. And so their quest is kingly robes, kingly horse, maybe a crown, And then have some high official march him around the city square yelling about this is someone that, you know, the the king decides to honor. And some of you know where this is going, right? Because this is just like the sweetest turn of events. Uh, Esther 6, verse 6. Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and let a horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horses be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, right? Like it's not even like the servant guy from the stables, right? Like it has to be one of the high officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse throughout the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king thinks this is a great idea. Verse 10, 
The king said to Haman, and wouldn't you have loved to be a fly on the wall for this one? The king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, and as you have said, and do so to Mordecai. And just in case you don't know which Mordecai I'm talking about, in case there's a lot of Mordecais in your life, it's the Mordecai who's a Jew who sits by the gate, just so we're clear on that. It's that Mordecai. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I don't, I, we don't, yeah, this is a rough day for Haman, right? Like, I mean, it's just such a sweet reversal of, of plot line. I can only imagine that for Haman, like, this is pure horror and shame. Like, this is, this is literally the worst thing that could happen to you, given that you had just showed up early to try to get this guy killed, and now he, you, you have to give him all of this honor. Also take note of the time. Haman shows up early morning to make this request. Later on in the story, Haman has just enough time to run home, cry to his family and friends about it before the servants show up to take him to an evening feast. Haman had to do this all day long. Like this was an all-day event, to get the robes, to get the horse, to track down Mordecai, to have to explain what you're about to do for him lead him around, put everything back. Like, this was an all-day event for, for Haman. And it's so bad that even Haman's wife and his friends realize that Haman is done for. Chapter 6, verse 12. Haman hurried to his house, mourning, with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Suresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife said to him, If Mordecai... Before, before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And we're going to stop there. Next week is Mother's Day and child dedication, and so we'll do kind of a special focus on that. We'll pick this story back up again then in, in two weeks and, uh, and continue to, to follow it through, probably finish it out. Esther invited Haman to a party so that she could call him out before the king. Uh, She intended to make the king choose between her and Haman. A very bold and courageous move. I mean, her her bravery in all this just can't be ignored. I mean, it's just remarkable. But somewhere along the line, Esther has a two-party plan, a a, a two-feast plan, not one. And we have to say it's so significant because of the miracle that God does in the king's life between those two parties and how well this sets up both Esther and Mordecai when Esther literally makes her plea like less than than 24 hours. Esther had no idea that any of this was going to happen. The whole sleepless night, honoring Mordecai, making Haman do it, Esther had none of that charted out in her mind. And so we have to believe that, that somehow God restrained Esther from talking in that first party so that he could give her the words in, in the second party. Did, God did not allow her to make her, her, her plea or to plead her case that first night. He kept her silent when she needed to be silent. There are moments where God will keep you silent. And at the time, you may feel like a failure or that you dropped the ball or you did something wrong. But if this is of God then you will see how critical it was that you were silent for the first part and then spoke 
when it was time to speak. The second big miracle is that God raised up Mordecai and brought down Haman, and no earthly person had anything to do with it. That was entirely God's doing start to finish. There will be times where God will protect you. There will be times where God will protect your honor. There will be times where God will protect your reputation, where, where he will redeem your life or protect your job or your career or your family. And some of these times you will have nothing to do with it. Now, I mean, we, we do talk a lot about how sometimes, you know, following Christ can be difficult and there can be sacrifices to, to be made. And that's part of the equation. It's important that we talk about that. But at the same time, there are times where God will guard you and protect you and you find out about it later on. How amazing that we can follow a God like that. How amazing that we can trust in a God like that. How amazing that we can give our lives to a God like that. God is desperate for restored relationship with, with all of us. He has done everything on his end, and now it's just how are we going to respond to all of this? And what a wonderful invitation to, to follow God like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story of Esther and, and how we can learn about your character and the kind of God that you are and how you are working and moving um, when we don't see it, when we hadn't thought about it. Lord, there, were, there are times where you work to, to save us, to save our reputation, to, to intervene on, on our behalf, and we have no knowledge of it. Sometimes we do and sometimes not. Lord, we thank you for the, the great example of Esther and of her bravery and of her courage um, and even just of the, the collaboration and the planning, Lord, that, that her and Mordecai invested in this. And Lord, there are many inspirational examples within all of that but today lord we want to learn about you about your character about how you intervene for your people how you treat your people how you view your people lord thank you we are so gracious to you and indebted to you we love you jesus in your name amen Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.